So our scripture reading today from Obadiah 1 is the vision of Obadiah. The scripture reading was deliberately short for two reasons. First, a little scripture is still powerful, inspired, and it's the infallible word of God. And sometimes to just focus on a little piece of it, even a word, is important. Second, we're going to be reading most of the rest of Obadiah through the rest of the sermon today, so instead of doing it twice, uh, we'll get to a good bit of it here in a moment. The Old Testament is an ancient book that is set mostly in Middle Eastern agricultural society, and as a result, as we read it and study it, uh, we're dealing with a world that's pretty foreign to us with temples and animal sacrifices, sabbatical years, and dietary laws, and much, much more. And so this is certainly far far removed from our post-industrial modern church and our world of technology. Therefore, preaching from the Old Testament means that we first face this huge uh, cultural and historical gap. But again, the Word of God is living, which means that it is powerful for every age and for every culture. Its principles and its lessons are eternal and universal. The Holy Spirit moved Obadiah to write to the people of his day. And at the same time, and this is really critical for us to remember, the Holy Spirit also had me and you in mind. Both are true. So it's written to them, but it's also written for us. The name Obadiah simply means servant of the Lord. And this points to the fact that the prophet was a messenger who did not speak of his own initiative. As we read in Second Peter uh, chapter 1, Peter informs us, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Now this book is considered to be one of the minor prophets, but it's not minor because it's in the minor leagues, but simply because it's short compared to the major prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah. In fact, on that basis, we could say that Obadiah is the most minor of all because it's only one chapter and 21 verses. I was initially attracted to it first because I've never heard a sermon from Obadiah and second because it's short. We may not safely neglect any portion of God's Word for Jesus said... Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now, Obadiah is minor in another way. That is, most people's knowledge of it is minor. After I began to study Obadiah, it became clear that this short book was packed with with an important and powerful message from God. Moreover, that powerful message from God speaks to us in our day. And so we should also keep in mind that the prophets were no more accepted in their own day than they are today. 
that often when they spoke, they were rejected or persecuted, as Jesus said. So first, let's take a little look. This is an introductory sermon. Let's look a little bit at the structure of the book. David Field, in his commentary on Obadiah, lays out some helpful structure which will assist us in understanding this and other portions of the Bible. So this is introductory sermons are important for just laying this groundwork to get a little understanding. So what we're going to do is do, do some look at the structure, but also an overview of the book so that we know where we're going. Think of the world like an archery target with three circles. The bullseye is the garden or the sanctuary, the center where people, the people of God relate directly to God. The next ring is the land where the people of God relate to their brother-to-brother relationships, their closest neighbors, if you will. The outer ring is the world where the people of God relate to other human beings who are more distant or outside the covenant. So there are three key relationships with the father, with the brother, and with the outsider. The people of God are called to faithfulness in all three areas, all three zones of relationships. So, for example, the book of Genesis is organized around these themes. The fall of chapter 3 takes place in the garden sanctuary. It's where Adam and Eve are relating to God and where, through sin, that is broken. And then in chapter 4, in the land, we see a relationship brother to brother with Cain and Abel. And then in chapter 6, in the world with the outsiders, We see Noah and the ark being built and the preaching is going on to the whole world that has uh, come under the influence of evil continually. These things are also seen in the story of Abraham who sets up sanctuaries and and the emphasis is on trusting the father. The story of Jacob, brother-to-brother rivalry. We'll say more about that today. The story of Joseph in Egypt is focused upon his connection with the broader world in Egypt. And so as we come to different passages in the Bible and the events of the Bible, we should ask, is this primarily a sanctuary matter, God's relation, God's people's relationship to God, or a land matter, how God's people are to relate to their brothers, or a world matter, how God's people relate to those outside In 587 B.C., three things were happening. Well, a lot more than three things, but these three things were happening. First, Judah's sins uh, of idolatry were punished by God because they had been unfaithful. She had been unfaithful to him. Uh, Now, just a note here. After the death of King Solomon, sometime around 930 B.C., 343 years before the events of Obadiah, the kingdom split into northern, a northern kingdom which re- retained the name Israel uh, and a southern kingdom which would be called Judah, so named after the tribe of Judah that dominated that kingdom. But Judah is still Israel in, in the historic sense, still descendants there. So first, Judah's sins of idolatry are punished. This is again 587 B.C. Second, 
God's people were then mocked and hurt by their brothers. That is going to be Edom, which is what's talked about in the book of Obadiah. And Edom, the Edomites, were the descendants of Esau. So we have Jacob and Esau. Again, more about that in a moment. So brother to brother. And then third, the Babylonian outsiders defeated God's unfaithful people. So that's a third thing. But the book of Obadiah does not really, doesn't mention the sins of Judah or the destruction of the temple. So it's not a sanctuary book about the relationship with the Father. It does not mention the Babylonians or what, what to do in exile. So it's not a world book about relationships with outsiders. Rather, Obadiah is all about the Edomites, their pride, their self-reliance, and their malice. And so it is a book about relationship with brother. So who are the brothers? Well, the book of Obadiah, again, is all about Edom, which is the national embodiment of Esau, the descendants of Esau. You'll recall the story of Jacob and Esau. Israel and Judah will grow out of Jacob. Edom will grow out of Esau. Isaac's wife, Rebekah, was barren. So Jacob prayed that God would give her a child. Uh, And so, I mean, Isaac prayed that uh, God would give her a child. And so she conceived twins. And we read in Genesis 25, But the children struggled together within her, And she said, if all is well, why am I like this? Can you imagine the twins having a fight already inside of her? And she said, there's something wrong here. This can't be right. And so she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your body One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. The New Testament sheds further light on this story, as the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 9, and not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even our father Isaac, for when the children were not yet born, not having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. So there are two lines of descendants from Isaac. Israel and Judah descending from Jacob and the Edomites descending from Esau. You see, it was never enough just to be born into a Jewish family. And by the way, it's never enough just to be born into a Christian family. It's necess- those are important things, those are helpful things, but they are, there's more to it than that. Jacob represents those who are the recipients of God's undeserved grace in his work of redemption. Esau, the firstborn, represents those who persist in rebellion against God. I, I just think there's kind of an illusion here if we think about the, product, the story of the prodigal son with Israel being like the prodigal son and perhaps the older brother being a lot more like Esau is in in these stories. So as the Old Testament comes to a close, we read this declaration to Israel from God in the book of Malachi. I have loved you, says Yahweh. 
Yet you say, in what ways have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says Yahweh? Yet Jacob I have loved. But Esau I have hated, and I laid waste to his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. Even though Edom has said, we have been impoverished, we will return and build the desolate places. But thus says Yahweh of hosts, they may build, but I will throw down. They shall be called the territory of wickedness and the people against whom Yahweh will have indignation forever. Your eyes shall see and you shall say, Yahweh is magnified beyond the border of Israel. In Psalm 137, the prayer is for God to remember his promise to deal with the enemies of his people. And we read in verse 7, remember, O Yahweh, against the sons of Edom, the day of Jerusalem, who said, raise it, raise it, or cut it down to its very foundation. In David Fields' commentary, he sets this scene. In 587 B.C., the Jews saw the city of Jerusalem fall to the Babylonians and the temple built by Solomon nearly 400 years before was destroyed. The experience of this devastating judgment was made all the more bitter because the Edomites, their brothers, their next-door neighbors, not only did not come to their aid, but far worse, they also rejoiced in their humiliation and mocked their pain, looted their goods, and handed handed over their survivors to the Babylonians. The book of Obadiah is a prophecy probably given shortly after the fall of Jerusalem, which tells of the judgment upon Edom and the restoration of God's people. Bible dictionaries describe the geography of Edom in this way. The land of Edom, also called Seir, S-E-I-R, lay south and east of the Dead Sea, straddling the... uh, um, the Araba Rift Valley, now part of the Jordan Valley, running south from the Sea of Galilee to the Gulf of Aqaba, which forms part of the border between Israel and the west and Jordan to the east. On the east, it was rocky and mountainous. At times, it it reached uh, 3,500 feet in elevation, the Araba also, Araba also drops steeply at the Dead Sea, which is, a, which is 1,368 feet below sea level. So there's almost a mile difference in elevations from the lowest point to the highest point, just a little less than a mile. And this is important to the story here, as, as we'll see. Though it pa- And here's why. Through it passed two major traffic routes, the King's Highway and the road along the Araba, Edom's control over much of the north-south trade fed their coffers, also made them a target for attack. But you got the picture here. Here they are in this mountainous region. People have to pass through there, uh, all these big trade routes. And so they had control over this area, and they enriched themselves. So they're in a strategic position, particularly over Judah and others, and this is, is part of what's going to help lead them to great pride and arrogance. So I want us to see this morning just an overview of the three major themes of this short book. 
First is the guilt of Edom. Edom deserves God's judgment for the same reason divine punishment comes to various nations and, by the way, to individuals. The first sin on the list was pride. It says in verse 3, the pride of your heart has deceived you, has tricked you, has fooled you, given you a false sense of security. Edom thought they were too great to fail. How about America? Have we been made great again simply to make our judgment more pronounced? History is filled with once great nations. By the way, graveyards are filled with once great people. Edom was convinced that she was safe, but she was wrong. Her mountaintops could not keep her from the hand of God, the arm of God. Verse 4, Though you ascend as high as the eagle, and though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, says says, uh, Yahweh. Edom has a false sense of security that God was about to shake. He will always bring down the proud. You know Proverbs 16, 18 and 19, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Better to be of a humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. Well, the Edomites were dividing the spoil. In fact, Edom is relying on their political alliances, their version of NATO. But they've been deceived. Perhaps this alliance was under some pressure from the Babylonians. I thought about China. There's always other nations at work. Don't always assume that because somebody signed a treaty, because they said they're your friend, that they are. So Edom is relying on that. But perhaps they're under pressure by Babylon, but certainly prompted by God, these alleged allies who are, what the Bible says, the hearts of kings are in the hands of God. The so-called allies, far from being from helping Edom, will betray them and refuse help so that Edom, in the end, is just confounded. Look at verse 8 and 9. Will I not in that day, says Yahweh, even destroy the wise men from Edom and understanding from the mountains of Esau? Then your mighty men, O Teman, shall be dismayed to the end that everyone from the mountains of Esau may be cut off by slaughter. In other words, God's about to fool them, about to show them they're not nearly as smart as they think they are. He's going to bring their wisdom to nothing. Even their military might will fail them. 1 Corinthians 1, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world. And the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. That no flesh should glory in his presence. Now Edom's second sin 
uh, here. We said pride was the first thing here in their guilt. Second is their mistreatment of God's people. Verse 10 and 11, For violence against your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. In the day that you stood on the other side, in the day that strangers carried captive his forces, when foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, even you were one of them. God's people, his church, gives health to the nations. Destroy the church, destroy God's people, and the nation crumbles. We are witnessing a similar thing in our own days. God says of the Edomites, who were supposed to be Israel's brother, even you were one of them, one of their enemies. And so a fuller accusation of Edom's guilt comes in a fourfold reference to the day of Judah's destruction, distress, calamity, and affliction. Edom, remember when you hear Edom, just say Esau, had personally contributed to these calamities by betraying Judah, or say Jacob, his brother, as they fled across this common border. Verse 14, you should not have stood at the crossroads to cut off those among whom, among them who escaped, nor should you have delivered up those among, whom, among them who remained in the days of distress. God was watching, and He is watching. He's always watching. 1 John 3.17, But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts, shuts him up from the, from his, and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? And so the Edomites showed at best indifference or even pleasure at the suffering of God's people, gloating, rejoicing, and even mocking and boasting. And so they began to loot their brother's possessions, take advantage of them. Finally, they blocked the escape routes and rounded up those refugees and handed them over to the Babylonians. This is how the progression of persecution proceeds. So that's the first area that's of our overview. First theme, Edom's guilt. Second, the judgment of Edom. Now we should note that God can simultaneously chastise his own people and also bring judgment upon the oppressors. In this situation, God gives reassurance to his oppressed people that even though arrogant Edom seems to have gotten the upper hand, nevertheless, the process of judgment has already started as God has stirred up the nations to go to war against Edom. God's in charge. God's in control. So remind yourself of that as you're watching the news or who's doing what. He's in charge. We're watching right now uh, something that is increasingly a little bit scary, uh, and that's this coronavirus. I don't know what's going to happen. Maybe it fizzles out. God's in charge of the viruses too. And he can undo any man's plan at any time. In this situation, God, again, gives reassurance to his people. We see evidence of judgment clearly present in our own culture now. The full harvest of that judgment is still to come. At, at this point, Obadiah expands his spectrum. So it's not just going to be Edom. This is interesting comment here in verse 15. 
to include all the nations in coming judgment. For the day of Yahweh upon all the nations is near. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your reprisal shall return upon your own head. God's answer is that He's going to personally intervene in history in what is called the day of Yahweh. The divine judgment is imminent. It's inescapable and universal. Therefore, it's impossible for the Edomites to avoid it. The basis for God's universal judgment will be lex talionis. You shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Exodus 21. Whatever Edom has done to Judah, so it will now be done to Edom. The same warning Jesus gives in Matthew 7. Whatever judgment you use, that's the judgment will be used on you. Be sure your sins will find you out. In fact, the extent of God's judgment is seen in the fact that, no, verse 18, no survivor shall remain of the house of Esau, for Yahweh has spoken. Period. End of sentence. So in the final judgment, at the end of the world, the seed of Satan will be completely eliminated None of them and none of us shall survive the scrutiny of God's final judgment apart from Christ who suffered that judgment on behalf of his people. Now the third theme, we have the guilt of Judah, we have the judgment of Judah, and third, the consequences of Edom's judgment for God's people. This coming day of Yahweh's judgment, how will God's people fare? Well, the judgment of Edom will mean deliverance to Mount Zion, verses 17 and 18. But on Mount Zion there shall be deliverance. There shall be holiness. The house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire. And the house of Joseph a flame. But the house of Esau shall be stubble. They shall kindle them and devour them. And no survivor shall remain of the house of Esau, for Yahweh has spoken. God defeats all of his and our enemies. Jesus subdues them and makes them his footstool. We know how the story ends. Wherever wherever God makes himself known as judge, he will also make himself known as a savior to his people. In the case of Obadiah, a clear contrast is made between the exaltation of Mount Zion and the humiliation of the mountains of Esau. So in this book, Zion is designated as Mount Zion, and Edom or Esau is designated as the mountains of Esau. Ultimately, the entire land of Esau will be possessed by God's people. As Proverbs 13.22 says, the wealth of the sinner is stored up or laid up for the righteous. In fact, it seems the book of Obadiah is really an explanation of the final chapter of the book of Amos, which comes right before this book. And in Amos chapter 9, verse 12, we read this, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. Says it is Yahweh who does these things. In the end, evil Edom will be annihilated. Verse 19 and 20 The south shall possess the mountains of Esau. 
and the lowland shall possess Philistia. They shall possess the fields of Ephraim and the fields of Samaria. Benjamin shall possess Gilead. And the the captives of this host of of the children of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zaphrath. The captives of Jerusalem who are in Sheprad shall possess the cities of the south. And so what we have is to the south, to the west, to the north and the east, all the lost territory will be recovered. Verse 20 states it another way. One group of exiles will take over the land to the north and another will take over the land to the south. Where is the kingdom of God today? Where's Edom? Where's Rome? We could go on down a long list. Where is the kingdom of God? Other nations and kingdoms come and go, but the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever. Verse 21 of Obadiah, Then saviors shall come to Mount Zion, the judge to judge the mountains of Esau, and the kingdoms shall be Yahweh's. That's how the story ends. How it always ends. So let me just say in wrapping this up, the New Testament is an inspired commentary on the Old Testament. You know the old saying, the the new and the old is contained and the old by the new is explained. So just two verses and we'll leave with this as we come back in the weeks ahead to look at this further. We're going to be looking to see what Jesus said about how all the prophets spoke of him. Luke 24, Jesus said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Acts 3.24, yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days. So we're going to be looking, digging, to see, to discover what God has revealed about Obadiah. We should be encouraged by these things. We're the people of God. Yes, God chastises us. Yes, he brings trials into our lives and challenges, to put it mildly. Yes, we have real enemies. We have real opposition in the world, some more than others. Some Christians face more persecution. God's still in control. We should not despair. God's paying attention. The story is not over, but we do know how the story ends. Personally and corporately. Let's pray. Father, thank you for moving the prophets to speak and write that we might know you and your holiness and power. We learn that the proud shall never stand and that you never forsake your people. Even in the midst of our own chastisement, you are present to preserve and protect You have promised and you will bring to pass both your judgments and your blessings. Help us to take you at your word and to live in the light of what it reveals. Thank you for enabling us to see how the story 
how our story ends. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First Peter 5.5 5 says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The primary sin of Edom was pride, and that's a sin that threatens to undo every person and every nation. When a British newspaper invited readers to submit their answers to the question, what's wrong with the world, G.K. Chesterton wrote, Simply, editors, I am. Sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. Of the so-called seven deadly sins, pride is at the top of the list. It's the mother sin, the source of the other six. Lust is pride expressing itself sexually as well as in other ways. It takes what it wants He uses it and tosses it in the trash. Avarice is pride in the marketplace and in our culture. It wants more and more and is never satisfied. Anger is pride in relationships. It didn't get what it wants and it wants revenge. Envy is pride casting an evil eye at its neighbor, wishing for what he has. Sloth is pride expressing its selfishness concerning work. None for him, thanks. Everyone owes him. Gluttony is pride at the dinner table and other places. In the end, it's our pride that kills us. This is why the gospel always begins with self-denial. Bowing of the knee before God. A cry out for mercy. And so, I invite you to the Lord's table where we come to remember who we really are. Sinners saved by grace. Infinite grace. Free grace. Amen. Give us, O God, a love for your scriptures and a true understanding of them. Lord Jesus, open our understanding and cause us to know the truth and order our lives according to it. Let the gracious promises contained in your word quicken our obedience. Let your dreadful threatenings and judgment upon sinners frighten us from sin and obligate us to a speedy repentance. Bless now this Lord's Day with rest and delight in you and in your people as we go to celebrate. May we do so with all of our might, for the joy of the Lord is our strength. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Amen.